Eternal Future, History of Punk. In today's episode, the second episode, we'll be talking about the Velvet Underground and their influence on the punk movement. So, as I already said in the last episode, they're a huge, huge influence to punks, especially their first album, The Velvet Underground and Nico. So, let's get into the Velvet Underground's history. Lou Reed and John Cale founded the Velvets in 1965. They influenced many popular styles of music in the 60s and 70s, and to this day, it wasn't just punk, it was like mainstream rock, glam rock. So, the lead singer and guitarist, his name was Lou Reed, he was a musician that had played in many garage rock bands after uh, attending Syracuse University in New York. He could play guitar, piano, he could sing, and he could also write music. So he was raised in a middle-class family from Brooklyn. He played in uh, two local bands, and he worked at a stu- as a studio musician for a budget record company called Pickwick Records, which made uh, novelty records, and they were located in New York. Their uh, their songs were emulations of popular bands and music styles at the time. Like Lou Reed said, that like they put them in a studio and tell them that they wanted two hot rod songs and then two like two three surfing songs. Um, some of these songs had, like, lyrics, lyrical themes that were different from popular music and deemed not for popular consumption. Like, um, one of the song's dance instructions was, like, put your head in the floor and let someone step on it. Definitely quite different from the popular music at the time. And they were really just, like, often the names of these bands were, they were, like, similar to the bands that actually produced records like this. So it was really just kind of copying these bands and then giving people emulations of those bands and sort of trying to trick people, but also sort of just for f- just funny, to be funny. Um, while working at Pickwick Records, Lou Reed, he met John Cale, who was a violinist, pianist, and singer. He was originally from Wales. Uh, he came from the U.S. on a scholarship to study with Aaron Copeland at the Eastman Conservatory in Lenox, Massachusetts. He was a classically trained musician, and he was um, he also could play viola. And he uh, and Lee Monty Young, another musician who was also another classically trained musician, formed the Dream Syndicate, which is also known as the Theater of Eternal Music. Uh, they were obsessed with like meditative drones and chants. And they'd had, like, practices every day for hours at a time, where they were, like, perfecting these drones and chants. Um, while working with the Dream Syndicate, uh, John Cale, like, learned how to, how to, like, he perfected these drones, droning sounds, which he later used in the Velvet Underground. He had an electric viola that he made himself, which had guitar strings on it, and the drones, as I already said, this instrument made, they were essentially the Velvet Underground sound. And were one of the many things that sent them apart from, like, the popular music at the time. Because, like, at the time, they were, like, kind of, like, poppy. They didn't have a lot. Of, they weren't really. It was, like, mostly just, like, guitar, bass, drums. They didn't really have an electric viola that played d- drones. It's definitely a bit different from your popular popular music at the time. So, uh, Lou Reed and John Cale, they formed a band called The Falling Spikes. In 1964, with guitarist Sterling Morrison and drummer Walter DiMaria. Uh, DiMaria, he left the band and was replaced by Angus McLeese, who's a Scottish drummer. 
And Angus McLeese, either quit or was fired. And then they got another drummer. Her name was Maureen Tucker. And then at about that period of time, the name The Velvet Underground was decided. It was based on a book by Michael Lay. And that was the lineup that they went for, that they used for like most of the time that they were, for most of the like most of the time that they were a band. Lou Reed he wrote most of their songs and he was the major creative force behind the band. They developed a sound that later became associated with punk, the whole like amateurish, loud, kind of in your face dealing with subject matter that was really, really not not optimistic and also just completely different from the popular music and kind of really deemed inappropriate for consumption by the general public. They had stuff dealing with graphically with drug use, like heroin. They had I'm Waiting for My Man, Waiting for Your Drug Dealer. Um, They had other songs with really equally offensive subject matter. It is completely different from what was popular at that time. Like, Think about it, like, in 1966, when these songs were written, the Monkey's song, I'm a Believer, was, like, the number one hit song. That song is really, conveys optimism about the future, and, like, being in love, and all that. A lot of the Velvet songs were really just, like, depressing, and not, like, let's just get high and be happy. It's like, let's face the world. And that was really a punk idea that they really embraced. That was, like, the the content of these songs, like... There's this huge difference between, like, hit songs like I'm a Believer, She Loves You, and that was one of the main reasons that the Velvet Underground were never very popular. Because imagine, like, if you're, like, a person who runs a radio station, would you really want to play a song about taking heroin, about waiting for your drug dealer, about suicide? I don't think you would. I, I probably wouldn't if I was worried about money and worried about all that. Another reason they're not very popular might also have to do with the amateurish sound of their music. It's also very aggressive, and the length of some of their songs, it really varied. Um, They did, however, they developed a very small cult cult following, and a lot of those people, as I said, it was a cult following, so a lot of those people were very devoted to the band. It's just that they never broke into the mainstream until afterwards, about when Lou Reed went solo. And then also when punk became mainstream. So, uh, Andy Warhol. Andy Warhol. He became the Velvet's manager in 1966. He, um... He said that, like, uh, the pop art idea was that people could do do it all. It was that everybody could do anything. So we were all trying to do it all. So he wanted to try to get in on music. And, um... He decided to manage them. And they let him. Uh, Velvet Underground were also very different from popular music because of their live shows. Uh, Sometimes, in some circumstances, they actually turn their backs to the audience. They're unsmiling and sullen live. And then when you, like, compare them to, like, Beatles, the Monkees, they're all, like, happy and peppy and really charismatic. And then the Velvet Underground, they're just like, we're just gonna play but we're not even gonna like acknowledge the the that the audience is there uh andy warhol had a lot of like mixed media shows which meant by like went by many names such as andy warhol uptight the plastic inevitable 
inevitable, the erupting plastic inevitable, the exploding plastic inevitable, and EPI. It'd be multiple movies playing on like different walls at the same time. Times like one Andy Warhol film was film like was playing behind the stage. Uh, another one was playing on the left on the left wall. The other one was playing on the right wall. They obviously didn't have sound, but it was a very chaotic. It was really like a chaotic, like chaotic setup, and there are like crazy, crazy lights. So it's very like disorienting. Uh, they filmed two of them. It's called the two films are called the the exploding plastic inevitable and live at the balloon farm. Um, if you just like watch part of those, it's just you have no idea what's going on because it's just so crazy. Um, Warhol convinced them to use, because Warhol thought they needed a new singer, he convinced them to use the German model, actor, and then aspiring singer. Nico is lead singer, and they reluctantly accepted. She had a very, very strange style of talking and singing. If you just listen to some of her songs that she did with Velvet Underground, it's very interesting. It's kind of, I don't know, it's strange. Um... Also, some of the one of the other things that they had at the mixed media shows, they had like dancers. They had a guy with like a whip who did like a whip dance with like a thirteen foot whip. And they also had like interviewers like asking like completely provocative and offensive questions. Um. And then Nico, she'd recently arrived from London. Um, her sense of fashion like really clashed with the Velvet's all black like look. Their kind of bleak sound and their attitude. And it kind of exemplified their, like, kind of streetwise-ish look. And it made them, um... It really clashed with them. There's a lot, like, kind of, like, Johnny Rotten. His, like, hyperactive stage presence kind of... It was, like, an overstatement. And it made them, like, have greater shock value. Um, same In the same way, Nico kind of made the rest of the Velvet Underground look like really, like, tough people. Or even tougher than they were. Um, Velvet Underground, their first performance with Nico was at an annual banquet for the New York Society of Clinical Psychiatry at Delmonico's Restaurant in Manhattan. Um, Warhol was slated to appear as a guest speaker there. These psychiatrists, they were told that they were going to watch a movie after after dinner. But instead, like at the start of the main course, the Velvet Underground, they just kind of started to play. Um, these psychiatrists were just completely caught off guard because they were not expecting this. And um, most of them left before the end of the dinner. Um, almost everyone was gone by the time the last speaker appeared to talk. Um... During a lot of these performances, as I already mentioned, there are often multiple films playing at the same time. These films were uh, made by Andy Warhol and contained, yet again, subject matter offensive to the general public. Um, taking drugs, some of that stuff. Also featured, uh, also taking drugs and um, being being gay were some of the some of the things that were talked about in these movies or just shown. Uh, they also featured an unpolished style, and then when they were shown in, like, theaters and stuff, uh, and during Warhol's mixed media shows, they used, like, strange projection techniques. Um, 
The Velvet Underground, they released their first album with Nico. It was called The Velvet Underground and Nico. Really creative name. In 1967, it's been called Prophetic. And it's generally regarded as the most influential album of the 1960s. Um, it was a huge, huge inspiration for punk. And without them, there would not have been many other genres of music, such as glam rock and main- mainstream rock. Well, mainstream rock would have been different, and I don't think glam rock or punk would have existed without the Velvet Underground and their their style of music and their attitude. And I hit all the hit all the boxes, checked all the boxes that I want to talk about today. And thank you for listening to No Future, and be sure to listen to this third episode, the next episode. Okay, see you then.